as we continue our time of worship, let us read the passage for this morning, Ephesians chapter 6. Before we do, while you're turning to that place, I want to just tell you how grateful I is for I am. Words escaped me this morning. Holy cow. To be able to worship a living God with you this morning. When words fall short, let my praise be alleluia. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. I hope this is a passage that is familiar to you, but if it's not, let us just enjoy this together. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the full armor of God so you will be able to resist the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm therefore. Having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all flaming arrows from the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on behalf that my, uh, utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. To make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains. That in proclaiming it may speak boldly as I ought to speak. But that you also may know that my circumstances, how I am doing, Tychicus, oh my goodness, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren and love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Let us pray. Father God, as we continue our time of worship through the proclamation of your word, Holy Spirit, I invite you into this sanctuary, to our hearts, to our minds, to illuminate to us what your word would say. 
Let us be wholly dependent upon you and not approach it with some sort of academic rigor or emotional fervor. Let us humbly submit to the working of the Holy Spirit as He reveals your word to us about you. That we may walk away in the peace of Jesus Christ and in the grace of our Father because we are in Christ. Lord, speak through Matt the words you would have him to say. It is in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Bruce. As you should already be there from the reading, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 today. As you are, if you're not there yet, I'm going to ask you to open as I send our kids out to their classes. Our older kids will be coming back in for communion in just a little bit, but as they head out, I want to let you know that today is the last day. It is the last day of the book of Ephesians and it is the last day of our walk-worthy sermon. And the sermon series that goes with it, as you see on the screen behind me here, our last message is entitled, Life is War. Life is War. And if you know me, you probably know these things I'm going to tell you about me here in just a second. One, I am pretty much considered, and what people would consider, a stereotypical male. Or at least what used to be a stereotypical male. I'm a regular dude that does regular guy things. Now, there might be a lot more labels the world might toss on me, but that's basically what you're going to get from me. And two, if you know me, you know that I like Movies And by the way, today is National Cinema Day, where all the cinemas around Albuquerque are $4. So there's a new uh, Christian movie called The Hill. I have not seen it yet, so I'm not sure if I should be promoting it. But it looks all right, so go ahead and check that out for 4 bucks today if you get a chance to. I do like movies, and as a stereotypical male, there's two types of movies I really like. That is action and war. And in my humble opinion, I believe any great film should end with an epic battle, with the main character in a fight against what would seem to be insurmountable odds against an insurmountable enemy. But the only way to win is to dig down deep. It is to muster up that intestinal fortitude. It is to have courage and determination and all the things it takes to overcome. Now, please understand this is an abbreviated list. So if you're like, where's this movie at? I probably like it too. But here are the ones that really speak to me a lot of times. War movies. You have Braveheart. The Patriot. Saving Private Ryan, Hacksaw Ridge, and Gladiator. Those are probably in my top five. They're Westerns. Tombstone. Open Range. 310 to Yuma. True Grit and the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And if I didn't say every John Wayne movie, my grandfather would come up out of the grave and smack me. So I have to say that as well. Superhero movies you have, well, before they became political. Um, So many different choices in there. You have... James Bond movies, you have Mission Impossible movies, you have all of these different hero movies, and I can't forget sports movies, of course. You have your Rockies and your Sandlots and your Mighty Ducks and your Miracles and The Rookie, Remember the Titans. Basically, every sports movie that's based on a true story of somebody overcoming insurmountable odds. Those are the kind of movies that I like, and maybe it's just because I am that guy. I am that stereotypical guy, but I hope it's also because of the fact that inside each and every one of us, a hero story is written. A hero story is written about us. And it's a story that we see throughout Scripture. God's epic battle 
with a favorable outcome. Conflicts between good and evil. Between Satan and God's people. Between death and life. And the truth is, in literature, storytelling, movies, it's, there's something called the law of conflict. The no, law of conflict is basically summarized by this statement. Nothing moves forward in a story except through conflict. And if you stop and think about it, you know it's true even in your own life. What are the times that God has moved you forward? Is it in times of comfort and ease or in a time of conflict and really distress? How has God moved you closer to Him? Conflict really is the soul of the story. And as you see in Scripture, there are really seven different types of conflict that are mentioned. It's often copied in literature and then also in Hollywood. By the way, just about any movie that comes out has a base out of the Bible, whether they like it or not. You, you see the conflict arrive. You have man versus man. You have man versus nature. You have man versus society or the institution. You have man versus technology, man versus their calling, and of course, the big one, man versus the supernatural, which takes it a little bit wider than man versus God. That's why I say life is war. Life is war, and I'm not the only one. John Piper, in his book on missions and prayer called Let the Nations Be Glad, that was written back in 2010. Weird to say back in 2010, like it was so long ago. But here's the thing. He said this, life is war. That's not all it is, but it is always that. We are always in some sort of conflict within ourselves, with our God, with others, and it happens whether we realize it or not. Since the beginning of March, we've been in the book of Ephesians. Made worthy was our title for the first three chapters. Walk worthy was our title for these last three. And if we were to give one sentence to tie them all together, it would be this. Because believers have new life through Christ, they ought to live out that new life through the Spirit. And that, that basically summarizes the whole thing. That is the overarching theme of the letter. But Paul ends this letter with a great conclusion and a glimpse into the battle that is going on all around. That epic battle between the powers of darkness, keeping us from walking worthy, and the powers of the kingdom of light that are challenging us and giving us the power in the Spirit to walk worthy. Here Paul reminds us that we stepped into Christianity. We were invited into Christianity by God Himself, and when we did, we weren't invited into a playground. We weren't invited onto a cruise ship. Instead, we were invited to a battleground, a battleship, if you will. And oftentimes, we don't see that, and oftentimes, we don't know that. And you might be thinking, hey, Matt, you're being way overdramatic. It's not the first time in my life, just, just to be honest with you. But you might be saying, hey, Jesus says, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. There are, are times in the Bible that the Christian life is described as a family life. It's described as a farmer, the life of a farmer, the life of an athlete, the life of an investor, the life of an apprentice, the life of a manager, the life of a slave. Those are all correct, but I will add also that it is also described as a life of a soldier, a warrior. And each and every one of those descriptions is important. And each and every one of those contributes something to a way of life that overcomes sin and lives a life of worship and holiness. But when it comes to to directly dealing with the remaining sin in our lives, the image of the Christian life, it becomes less pleasant and more severe. 
the closer we get to dealing directly with our own sin and with the devil, the picture becomes more deadly and the images become more fierce. Why? Well, because of the very center of our deliverance from sin is the slaughter of the Son of God. You're like, whoa, slaughter is a big word. This table represents the slaughter of the Son of God. And you might be like, he, he was slain. Did you know slain is just a nice way of saying slaughter? Sometimes I think we, we remove that because we don't want to be too graphic. We don't want to realize really what's going on. But if we have been saved from the penalty and the power of sin any other way, a peaceful way, a pleasant way, a kind-hearted way, the Christian life might not be such a blood-stained subject. But it is all based on the blood of Jesus pouring out to wash away our sins. With a bloody crucifixion at the center of everything, we should not be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised in that dealing with sin that Christ died to destroy, we are drawn into a very serious conflict. And that conflict is what we call spiritual warfare. From what Pastor Bruce read up sent uh, uh, up front, he talked about how Paul tells us how to deal with spiritual warfare. But here is the New Testament process basically on how God saves us from the eternal penalty and the overwhelming power of sin. This is what it breaks down to. He was killed for your sin. You were killed in Him. Kill sin in yourself. That's it. Or as John Owen said way back in the day, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's the truth of the matter. As we begin to look at that, we have to understand it's not a peaceful picture. It's not a pretty picture because sin is not a pretty reality. All human suffering, especially the suffering of the Son of God, is meant by God to portray the unimaginable ugliness and offensiveness of sin. That's why God has subjected this world to this horrible futility and made plain how ugly and offensive sin is. Listen to this. Sin is so ugly and so offensive. The only remedy, the only remedy for it was the death of an infinitely worthy divine substitute. That's this table. So ugly and so offensive that sin was all human death. Billions and billions of deaths can be traced back to the first one. So ugly and offensive that hell, that everlasting conscious torment, is a just and proper response to it. I people always ask, Pastor Matt, why is God so mean? How could he send somebody to hell and, and have to go through all that? They either question who God is and his justice and righteousness, or they say, well, that can't be really what it is, and they try and lessen hell. The reason why is because neither of them want to really address the problem at, at hand, and that is our sin. Our sins against God. So ugly and so offensive that Jesus actually describes this sin in a parable as an unpayable debt. 10,000 times a 20 years wage. So ugly and offensive that God actually ordained 1,500 years of law covenant so that every mouth would be stopped and all would see that no human being could justify themselves by their works because through the law comes only knowledge of sin, not deliverance from it. Our conflict with this ugly and offensive sin is not a peaceful conflict. It is not our opportunity to to try and, and make peace with it. 
It wasn't peaceful on Golgotha, and it's not peaceful in your bedroom or in your kitchen or in your living room or at work or at school or any other place. But when we are faithful, when we are faithful, every time we meet the power of sin, we meet it with a spiritual sword. We meet it with a spiritual sword, and that means there is no truth, or sorry, no truths, no compromise, and no prisoners. It is a literal fight to the death. And that is why I say, life is war. Yes, it's possible that I am overemphasizing that life is war. But walking worthy every day, if you've been with us, you know that it is war. And the reason why is because we're not trying to make peace with sin, and we're not trying to have a peaceful coexistence with sin. We are trying to kill it, or it will be killing us. And that's why Paul concludes this letter on how to fight. And not just how to fight, but how to fight to win this unseen battle called spiritual warfare. As you heard Pastor Bruce read up front, he read Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, all the way through the rest of the chapter. 10 through 17, Paul challenges the Ephesians, as well as us, to stand firm by God's strength and God's armor in the midst of spiritual warfare. There's three commands that he gives us. Be strengthened, put on the full armor of God, and stand. These commands dominate the text. The rest of the things that are in there, and you'll see today, because I'm not going to go into great detail on all the stuff, or we'll be here for hours. They're all pretty self-explanatory. And so, as we dive in, what I want you to do is you have your Bibles open. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10, and it says this in this lead sentence. Be strengthened by the Lord and by His vast strength. How does He give us strength? The next part says, put on the full armor of God. And why is that necessary? So that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. Again, the point is to stand in God's strength with God's armor in the midst of spiritual warfare. There's repetition you probably saw in there or you heard as Pastor Bruce read. The word stand or resist or take your stand. And then the main emphasis of the passage in verse 14, stand firm therefore. We have here a defensive element. The first thing is we must resist the devil's temptations. I'm really looking forward to getting into the book of James here in a couple of weeks. James 4, 7 says something very similar. It says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Stand, hold your ground, don't give an inch. On the flip side, there's an offensive element to the text. Verse 17 says, take up the sword of the spirit. And verse 19 and 20 say, speak the gospel in the face of opposition. So you have a defensive element, you have an offensive element, and then you have a corporate church element. Because he says together, we have to put on the, the, the armor of God. Together, we have to stand firm. Together, we have to fight. If you're familiar with the Battle of Thermopylae, some of you are like, what? If you've seen the movie 300, you know what I'm talking about. Um, the, this is the picture that we see here. It's one of the most famous last stands. In 480 B.C., though outnumbered, the Greeks held back the mighty Persian army for three days. Like the 300 Spartans that fought, we too are supposed to take our stand. Don't give an inch. Fight the enemy in God's power, and we fight together. We fight together clothed in the armor of God, which allows us to extinguish the arrows of our enemies. So with all of that laid out, with all of that laid out, we need to see how to apply this. How do we apply this scripture? I know uh, back 
a couple of years ago, the beginning of 2021, we went through each step called the unseen battle. We went through each one of the pieces of armor. If you want to go check that out, please do. Because I'm just going to cover a lot of these things quickly. Because the application today is this. Is I want you to be aware of the battle. I want you to be equipped with God's armor. And I want you to be devoted to prayer. Because that is how we stand firm against the enemy's attacks. And how we advance the gospel in the midst of opposition. So first, be aware. Be aware of the battle. The first thing we need to do in order to be aware of the battle is this. We need to know the Lord's strength. We need the Lord's strength. Paul begins with this. He says, finally, wrapping up the whole letter, being strengthened by the Lord and in His and in and by His vast strength. We must be strengthened by the mighty power of the Lord because we don't want to crumble when the evil one tempts us. When the evil one attacks us, don't look to the wrong place for your strength. Our strength is not in our resources. It's not in our abilities. It's not in how long you've been a Christian. It's not how many Bible verses that you've memorized. It's not even about how long I've been in ministry or you've been in ministry. What it is is this, Ephesians 1.19, our strength is our union with Jesus Christ and His mighty power. That is where we get our strength. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul also refers to being a soldier, and he says this, Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. If we're going to stand firm, we need to look at the right place, and we need to look to the right person, and that is Jesus. We must remember who we are and what is ours in Christ. Do you know why Paul laid out in the first three chapters of this letter all that you are and all whose you are and why that is? To set up for this. He wanted to lay that foundation. You have to remember, they read through this whole thing in one sitting. They weren't like, hey, let's break it down from March all the way until August, and we're going to really check out what Paul is trying to say. No, it was a one-time reading and lays it all out there. And so this is where we're at. And he mentions this strength that we have in verse 10 and 11, as well as verse 13, that the devil can be resisted if we're walking in the Lord's strength. Second thing we need to see to be aware of the battle is we have to know our enemy. You have to know your enemy. And we can go into great detail on this if we want to, but I'm going to cover it really fast. Paul's already mentioned the devil in Ephesians 4.27. His Greek title is Diablos. Diablos, the slanderer. He opposes. He accuses. The word Satan that we have actually comes from the Hebrew, meaning adversary. And here's some other titles he has. We've already said the devil. Satan is the head of the demons and his minions. He's a serpent. Beelzebub, the ruler of this world, the god of this age, the evil one, the dragon. Paul, in this passage, talks about exactly who he is as he talks about the who we're fighting against, that we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against, and he lays it out. The first thing he says is the devil is evil. We need God's armor because we are facing the one who opposes God and has been opposing God since before creation. Paul mentions the spiritual forces of evil in verse 12 and the evil day in verse 13. The devil is evil. The second thing is the devil is strategic. Strategery is going on here. Verse 11 tells us that we need to be well aware of the devil's schemes and his tactics. Satan is devious. How does he do that? Go back to chapter 4. And Paul tells us how and where we get attacked with uncontrolled anger the desire to steal, to share unwholesome talk, speak falsehood. All of these are former ways before we met Jesus. 
before He saved us and made us alive with Him in Christ, back in chapter 2. Satan can make things look attractive. He can make them look desirable. He can distort the truth and he can camouflage them all and camouflage that evil, make us think it's okay. The next one is, is he wrestles. He's a wrestler. The battle or the wrestle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil. The word he used here for battle or wrestle is not used anywhere else in the New Testament, but it was also used in the sport of wrestling in the first century. That sport of wrestling, the context of the match was between two soldiers. It was a close, intense battle filled with manipulation and strategy. One thing that I have learned from going to Professor Reese's jiu-jitsu class in the afternoons is this. It really doesn't matter how strong you are. You better have a strategy. You better know the answer to the attack or you better know the answer to their defense or you're going to get tossed. Am I wrong? Am I wrong in summarizing it that quickly? I feel like I'm a pretty strong guy. But man, I get worked over pretty good and end up in an arm bar like that because I have no idea really what I'm doing. I'm just trying to be strong. And that doesn't work. And that's the same thing here. We can't just try and be strong. And, and it's a close up in your face attack that the devil's doing. He's not shooting some laser guided missile at you from a distance. He is in your grill. And we have to be ready for it. His audience might have thought, well, hang on a second, Paul. What, what do you mean we don't wrestle with flesh and blood? You have already told us in other letters that you've been beaten with rods and imprisoned and shipwrecked and left for dead in dangerous countless times. All of those things. Don't tell me your battle isn't physical. Well, you know what Paul is telling us? That the battle behind the physical, there is something more. Or what's behind the battle that is physical? There is something more. Something else is going on. There's an unseen cosmic spiritual battle in which each and every one of us are engaged. Now that might sound scary, but the next thing is something you need to understand that Paul declares that we need to hold on to, and that is the fact that the devil is defeated. The devil is defeated. We can have confidence because Jesus has already won the victory for us, hence the reason why we come to the table. To remember the victory we have. Paul does not urge us to win the battle here, but to stand. He says, stand. I love the saying that you've probably heard before. We're not fighting for the victory. We're fighting from the victory. We're fighting from the victory. The authority of the power has been broken. The final defeat is coming soon. And here's the thing. Just like a defeated enemy, Satan's mad about it. You ever had to deal with a wounded animal? They're always on the attack, even though they're not going to win. Satan's mad about it. When you study historical battles, that's the trend as well. When the army's defeated, they don't easily surrender. They get more intense and they beget, become more vicious. We're not called as if a battle is leading to a victory for the opposite team. Our victory is not in doubt. We fight with confidence because all things will be ultimately put under Christ's feet. Paul's already covered that in Ephesians. So please know we're all in a battle. Be aware of it. Second, not just be aware, but be equipped. Be equipped with God's armor. After telling us to put on God's armor, he describes it. He, he lays it out there for us. We spent two months, like I said, at the beginning of 2021 going through these. Please check them out on our iTunes podcast, or you can find them on our website. Again, the unseen battle. But this is what I do want you to see. The first thing that Paul says is, is the armor is of God. That's a very important thing for us to understand. It is not our armor. 
It is God's armor. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, God is described as a warrior. That same armor that is described there that the Messiah wears in the battle is also our battle gear. Why does that matter? Because it means that we do not need to yield one inch to Satan if we put on the full armor of God. But here's the thing. You have to have it on. It's not going to do you any good in your closet at home. When we get into war, you don't want to be like, well, hang on just a second. I got to... That's not the way it works. Have the armor of God on. And what is that armor of God? We'll go through it quickly again. You probably have heard it before. And if not, check it out as you go. The first thing is the belt of truth. Belt holds everything together. Paul's already mentioned that the truth is Jesus. Jesus himself said he is the truth. So put on the truth of Christ every day. Preach the truth of the gospel to yourself. Live in that truth throughout the day. Walk worthy in that truth, and it will hold everything together. Next, the breastplate of righteousness. For the Roman soldier, the breastplate covered the chest to protect against assaults and arrows. Paul's actually drawing a, a parallel here from Isaiah fifty-nine seventeen, where he says, Yahweh puts on the righteousness like a breastplate. We are to put on the same thing that the Messiah put on. Let me tell you this, it doesn't refer to imputed righteousness. This is not the righteousness it's talking about. That is the righteousness that Christ has given us. We don't put that on or take it off. That is Christ to give us. What he's talking about is practical righteousness. Right living. Living right, walking worthy. Put on those righteous qualities associated with your new life in Christ. And Paul tells us, those same things are the ones that are reflected in the life of Jesus. What's it look like? Well, we get rid of and block ourselves from impurity, lust, greed, or injustice. Realize who you are in Christ. Realize what you have in Christ. Realize our new identity in that righteous living. Next, the gospel shoes. The gospel shoes. Soldiers must have the right kind of footwear. I will say this. I hope I don't regret it for any reason. Any husbands out there, shoes are important depending upon what you're doing. Correct? You're not going to go into battle wearing flip-flops. You're going to go into battle with something that is going to hold firm and cause you to be able to march forward. And as I look at that idea, we are told those two things. The peace of God helps us to stand firm. It says put on the gospel of peace. So you're able to dig in. As a matter of fact, those shoes, the Roman soldier's shoes that Paul was probably staring at while he was writing this, as he sat on the ground chained to a Roman soldier, had nubs on the bottom to dig in. But also they were built with a comfort to be able to march long distances at a quick time to go as we're told to go and take the gospel. So not only does the gospel hold us against the lies, it's also something we can take with us and go. Next word, shield of faith. The word Paul uses for shield, it's not the Frisbee shield. It's not the one you had when you were a little kid when you held up your Frisbee and you had your pool noodle and you thought you were a Roman soldier. Maybe that was just me. I don't know. It was one of those shields that was the size of a door. And it was a giant shield that was built to protect the entire body, not just be something that would prevent little short attacks. It was a giant shield, not only to protect the entire body, it was something that could interlock with the people next to you. Remember I told you, we're doing this together. And when you built that wall of shields, you were protecting yourself and protecting the others around you from those flaming arrows that came in the form of lies. 
and hateful thoughts and doubts and desires. And we need each other to help with that battle. Helmet of salvation. Going back to that Isaiah 50, 17. Yahweh, the victorious warrior, wears the helmet of salvation. In Thessalonians, Paul calls it the helmet of the hope of salvation. God's people are put, or to put on the hope of God. They're to put on the hope of Christ. To resist the devil, we have to be assured of our salvation. I know there are denominations out there that do not believe that you are saved always, that you can lose your salvation. I completely disagree with that. Because if I could lose my salvation, I would. That is the truth of the matter. We have to be assured of our salvation. Go to God daily and be reminded of the great object of our faith, who is Christ. Our hope is in Him. If we are trusting in Him, then don't listen to the devil's lies because the devil is going to try and get into your head. I'm not sure if you played sports. That's always your object. It's always a mental thing. Sure, you can be stronger, but how about I just talk down to you and make you feel like you're not? How do I beat you? I get into your head. Same way Satan does it. Put on the helmet of salvation. Finally, the offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit, the final piece, is offensive. The believer has to take that sword and engage the enemy. The sword here that's talked about is a short sword or a dagger used for personal combat because, again, we're in a wrestling match. We are up close fighting. And the Spirit is who the sword is of. Of the Spirit, meaning that the sword is powerful and effective because of Him. Paul connects it with God's Word. He says this is God's Word, and Paul often uses God's Word for the Gospel that is Logos. But he doesn't use that word here. He actually uses Rhema, which usually refers to a spoken word. A spoken word. So if that's the case here, if we're on the offensive, we are speaking the Gospel as Christ spoke the Gospel and the devil tried to tempt Him which is powerful and effective when it is in the Spirit of God. So here's the truth. You need God's Word. Don't go into battle without God's Word. Don't go into battle without His sword. Read it, meditate on it, pray on it, proclaim it. You know what Paul never mentions in any of this? The soldier's back. You know why? Because we're supposed to stand firm. We're not supposed to turn our back to the enemy. We're supposed to stand firm and we're supposed to move forward. Stand our ground Don't back down. Even though this world might be trying to drag you down, I won't back down. Well, Tom Petty for you, in case you're wondering. The last point that Paul makes here, not just be aware, not just be equipped, but be devoted. Be devoted. Paul doesn't begin a new sentence in verse 18, by the way. That's a continuation of the thought. We stand firm against the enemy's schemes, through prayer. Be devoted to prayer. We're to take up the sword of the Spirit prayerfully. Unlike the other items previously mentioned, Paul is not associating any of this with a piece of armor or equipment. However, a modern piece of equipment does come to mind. A walkie-talkie. A walkie-talkie. I told you about John Piper's quote up front about how life is war. Um, Here is a bigger, more contextual picture of that same quote. He uses this picture. He said, we cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. Life is war. That's not all it is, but it is certainly that. Our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer 
is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in this world. Prayer is how we win this battle. Prayer is how we move forward. Prayer is an amazing thing. I mean, have you ever stopped and thought about the gift we have been given for prayer to be able to talk to the creator of the universe? Just stop and think about that. Jesus came, became the mediator. He, he took away the need for the priest to be able to go in. He gave us that straight line talk. It's a conversation. It's not just a one-sided thing. We get that with our God. And when Paul says pray at all times in the Spirit, I need to say something here because this has been twisted to, by some to mean something that it doesn't. What he's doing here is he's actually connecting and continuing everything we've talked about in verses or chapters 5 and 6 about being Spirit-filled, a Spirit-filled life, a Spirit-filled walk in wisdom and in love and in our homes and in our businesses. When we are praying in the Spirit, we are praying Spirit-filled prayers that say, it's not about me. God, what do you want? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. That is what I want in my life is what you want for me. Instead of praying for those comforts in the den, we are praying in war saying, God, how can I best be on the offensive for you? How can I best grow your kingdom? And there's two parts really to this spirit-filled, spirit-enabled prayer that we need to see that Paul mentions. First, he says, pray completely. Pray completely. Paul mentions four alls to express the completeness of this prayer. He says, pray, first of all, at all times. So everywhere, all the time, in any circumstance, pray. Pray with every prayer and request. Pray it all. All of it. All of it lumped together. We should stay alert with all perseverance, it says. Like good soldiers, we need to keep alert and not fall asleep. What happens in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus says, hey, can you just keep watch for an hour? What do they do? They fall asleep. He says, it's not time for us to fall asleep. We are at war. Life is war. We can't move into peacetime thinking. Something I was thinking about the other day is this. There's a very big difference between wartime thinking and peacetime thinking. If you're old enough to remember World War II, all the rationing that took place, all the things that you may have now seen in a history book for the people like me, you understand that there is a difference in thinking. We don't live in opulence when it is a wartime thinking. That is a peacetime thinking. We are at war. We are not at rest. The last all is making intercession for all the saints. The unity of the church has been a major focus in this letter. Now Paul says, hey, you need to pray for all the other Christians. You need to pray for all your brothers and sisters in Christ. When you become a Christian, you get a new family, which means you get a new responsibility. And you're going to pray for your brothers and sisters. For the focus is on all that emphasizes that all of life is war. And all of life must be lived in prayer. We have to see it that way. And since there is a war, it means we have to pray. Pray all the time. Pray with perseverance. Pray with a word that's in some years, supplication. Pray alertly. Pray persistently. Pray for all the saints. But he also says pray for boldness. 
Paul, a prisoner in chains, humbly requests that people will pray for boldness, for him to say the right thing in the right way. The greatest theologian missionary to ever walk the planet that wasn't Jesus is probably Paul, and he's asking for prayer because he can't do it on his own. You know what that should do? It should encourage you and me to go, okay, well, if he needs it, guess what? So do I. And we should be able to walk in that. I mean, he has the position as an ambassador, the representative of Christ. Well, guess what you've been giving according to Scripture? The position of ambassador, meaning we are representatives of Christ. But he knows he doesn't have the sufficient resources to do it on his own, so he asks for the church to pray for him. Where is he at when he asks the church to pray for boldness? He's in jail. He's chained to a prisoner, or to a, to a guard. He is a prisoner. When I look at that, I go, why didn't he ask, hey guys, can you pray that my life's a little easier and uh, you can take me out of these chains? And no. He says, give me boldness to be able to share the gospel where I'm at. God has me here for a reason and I'm going to do what I need to do because that's what God has called me to do. That is his prayer. Pray for others as they share the gospel. Next week, as you'll find out here shortly as Pastor Bruce does a training, we're going to be going out and sharing the gospel, even through prayer. Keith is setting up that prayer tent. We're working through all the details on that. Pray for that as we share the gospel. Because you know what evangelism is and sharing the gospel is? It is spiritual warfare. If you don't think we're going to get pushback, you are sorely mistaken. We are going to run into a buzzsaw. But thankfully, we have the armor of God protecting us from it. The culture is opposed to everything we have to say. So we need God's power to do it faithfully. Then Paul closes with these three verses and he reminds us that we're not fighting alone. The other believers who stood with him in this fight, he wants to encourage them and encourage them to encourage each other in the fight. Because you know what? It's easy to get beat down. It's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to hear those whispers of, you're not good enough. You know what? Those whispers are right. I am not good enough. But Christ is. And I rely on His power for it all. Life is war. And war is hard, which then in turn would make life hard. So what's Paul say here at the end? Tychicus was encouragement to Paul. Paul was encouraging the Ephesians by sending Tychicus to them. By the way, anybody in here think about Tychicus for their kid's name next time? Okay, just. Paul was sharing what God is doing in him and through him, through this letter. Paul wanted the Ephesians to know how their prayers are being answered. He also wanted the Ephesians to know that basically Satan was doing things also, trying to thwart and destroy the work of God. So what's Paul do? He reminds them who they are and whose they are. He reminds them of how they should respond and he encourages them all in this battle. As we say here at Paragon that, that we are a family. The church is a family of God. Other references in scripture talk about we are his flock. We are the people of his pasture. But we are also referred to in the scriptures as his army. All of these references are what? not individual. They are together. We are in this together. And as Paul closes out with a benediction, he includes four words. He says, peace, love, faith, and grace to those who have an undying love for Christ. That is an encouragement. 
because of all that Christ has done for us <clears throat> to bring us into his kingdom, to, to bring us closer to him. The question is, is, do we have that undying love? Three questions <coughs> that I really want to end with before we move to the table. Has the evidence of God in your life been there this week? Have you seen the evidence of God in your life this week? Have you seen the evidence of Scripture changing you this week and giving you the strength that you need to make it through? And have you seen an evidence of a growing love for God's mercy this week? Because in the midst of spiritual warfare, I will tell you that they do not want you to see these things. The devil and his minions, they do not want you to see the evidence of God in your life because then we can say, look how God, good God is. They don't want you to look at Scripture and see how it's changing your life this week because then you'll just put your Scripture aside and say, I'll pull it out on Sunday and let Matt tell me what's going on with it. I always laugh when somebody goes, well, I'm not getting fed at your church, so blah, blah, blah. I'm like, good. I'm not trying to be the one who feeds you for an entire week on one 40-minute meal. You need to feed yourself. If we need to help you learn how to do that, by all means, let's do that. Let's talk about discipleship. Let's get you involved in a connection group. Go to... Uh, Pastor Bruce's study in the beginning of uh, 9 o'clock when he's talking about how you study your Bible. Do those things. Evidence of a growing love for God's mercy this week is the last thing. And the lights went out. As we think about that, as we look at the evidence of God's growing mercy in our lives, one thing that I've seen and one thing that I have noticed over and over again is that the closer I grow to Christ, the more I realize I need Him. The close, closer I grow to Christ, the more I realize I need Him. The more I realize I need His mercy, because the more I realize how wicked and evil I was before Him. Before He came into my life. Can I challenge you today as we come to the table to remember that the victory is already won and that God is strengthening us through His Son, through His Word, through His Spirit to walk worthy of Him and walk worthy in Him. Today we're going to do communion. And if you are a Bible-believing follower of Jesus Christ, that's all we ask. I know some churches require membership. I know some churches require all sorts of things. There is no membership at the first communion. It was just followers of Jesus. Are you a follower of Jesus? If you are, you are more than welcome to take communion with us today. If you are not, man, you and I should talk. We should talk. I'll be down here in the front to talk to you about who Jesus is and how you can become a follower of His. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are and thank you for what you continue to do. As we come to the table, Lord, help us to remember that the battle that we face today has already been won through the victory on the cross. Today we give thanks. Today we remember all that you've done through your son Jesus Christ, that you slaughtered your son so that we could have life. May you have all the praise and all the glory for it today. We pray it in your name. Amen.